<laughs> a history of comedy. It's Chats. A history of comedy. Come and have a rummage in the archive. A history of comedy. It's Chats. A history of comedy. Come and have a rummage in the archive. Hello and welcome to A History of Comedy in Several Objects, a podcast brought to you by the University of Kent about the British Stand-Up Comedy Archive. The British Stand-Up Comedy Archive exists to collect, preserve and make accessible material relating to stand-up comedy. In this podcast we take um, one object from the collections each episode and talk about that object to see what it can tell us about the history and form of stand-up comedy. I'm Ollie Double, this is Elspeth Miller, and we are very much the Sherry Lewis and Lamb Chop of comedy archiving. No, I don't know. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, I tell you what, Sherry Lewis and Lamb Chop is amazing. I mean, it's not technically a double act in the sense of Lamb Chop was an inanimate object mm-hmm. that only appeared to be animate by oh. the fact it was a knitted ventriloquist dummy. I feel like I should know. So this, was this quite a famous? Is this like famous to black? Yeah, well, well, should I know this? Well, really? I don't know because because <laughs> you are significantly younger than me, so probably not. I mean, when I was a child, Sherry Lewis was on telly a lot. She was an American ventriloquist, and she had this knitted um, dummy, as it. I don't know what you'd call it if it's a puppet, because not you know. Anyway, it was a knitted puppet, mm. glove puppet kind of thing, of of a, of a of a sheep called Lamb Chop. As I remember it, Sherry Lewis often had like really massive 70s early 70s false eyelashes and lamb chop certainly i mean google google it do a google image search lamb chop definitely had like big old eyelashes oh yeah okay i've got an image in my head yeah i think i and that's sherry Lewis and lamb chop okay okay i definitely think you're sherry and i'm definitely lamb chop <laughs> <laughs> i'm knitted <laughs> sometimes when i wake up in the morning and stare at my sort of creased features in the in the mirror i kind of feel like yeah i'm definitely knitted oh. <laughs> knitted and worn <laughs> with some pilling I don't know what that means, but there we go. <laughs> so yeah, that's 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 the intro. So, so Elspeth, tell me what the item is that we're looking at today. Today we are looking at some notes and notebooks um, from Attila the Stockbroker's collection. Um, notebooks of poems, mainly uh, notes of poems. So so okay. So t- let's just start off with Attila the Stockbroker. If, if for listeners who younger listeners who may not know who Attila is. Who is Attila the Stockbroker? He is a poet. A yeah. Part of the ranting poets, okay. I think we would say. Oh, we would definitely say he was um, part of the ranting poetry scene okay. of the, well, initially of the early 80s. So he came up in the 80s um, and still performs today. We had a kind of an event with him a few years ago. And uh, so so what's in the collection then, uh, in Attila's collection? So it's material relating to his time, or his kind of career as a poet, really. So we do have, as I say, notes and notebooks of poems. We've got a fair amount of posters and flyers for, for gigs that he was doing um, and organising. We've also got quite a lot of press coverage, um, sort of cuttings, but also he was in some zines as well. So we've got like zines, some ranting poet zines, which are pretty cool. Um, and we've even got um, he his um, manifesto. So when he was, he was actually a student at the University of Kent in the late 70s and he ran for student president so you've got his kind of his manifesto from that time as well 
but that's amazing. So he was a student right here at the University of Kent yes. in the 70s, I guess. Yeah, so John Bain is his real name. I was going to say, I bet, yeah. you, I bet when he was a student, he didn't go, my name's Attila, Attila no. the Stockbroker. You could call me Mr. the Stockbroker. Yeah. Is my guess he didn't do that. So his name was John Bain. Hmm. Uh, but he's been known professionally as Attila the Stockbroker from quite an early time. I think he had another stage name initially, which I can't remember off the top of my head. But certainly all the time he's been sort of well-known uh, He's been Attila the Stockbroker, which is a great stage name. I mean, yeah. I, I've known it, you know, from from a lot for a long over thirty years. So it just seems normal to me. It's a bit like the Beatles, you know, when you hear the Beatles, you know, the fact that it's spelled like the Beat, mm. but the Beatles, you know, uh, you never strikes you as odd because the Beatles have always been around. You know, do you know what I mean? Like the 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 quality of that as a as a bit of a punnage and wordplay yeah. never particularly strikes you. But Attila. <laughs> as in Attila the Hun, and then stockbrokers, as in, you know, both representative of the establishment, the capitalist establishment, but also as as being kind of square, I suppose, you know, a stockbroker in the 70s or 80s, or 80s probably, if you wanted to come up with a profession that re- re- represented boring establishmentness, you'd probably go stockbroker. Do you know what I mean? So Attila the stockbroker, that's a fucking brilliant <laughs> name, I think. <laughs> Well, I mean, when, you, when did you first hear the name Attila the Stockbroker? Well, I fe- I, again, I sort of felt like I knew it sort of before I started working here. But it was certainly kind of since I was working on this, the stand-up project that I kind of was more aware of Attila. Um, but I feel like I knew the name. and That it was somehow lurking yeah, in the ether. Yeah. If you could lurk in ether, I don't mm. know if you can. But So, so I mean, um, do, should I talk a bit about uh, how this relates to stand-up? Because mm. he's a poet, not a stand-up. Yes. And, and he definitely wouldn't want to be thought of as a stand-up. I think that's true, isn't it? Mm. Yes, I would agree. Because when, when, didn't he do something to... Didn't, we, didn't you give him a T-shirt for... Yeah, so it was part of... When we had our kind of our one-year project to really establish the Stand-Up Comedy Archive, we had some print, um, T-shirts printed. We've still got some, actually, and we offer them, don't we? Yeah, it's if like you'd like a, to get one, yeah. then all you need to do is engage with us via yeah. social media or email us. Yeah. Uh, you, there's a section at the end of the episode that tells you how to do that, and we will send you one. Yeah, we've got small, medium, large, and extra large. Um, but we gave Attila one, um, and he sort of amended it. I didn't. I can't remember the exact words now that he's put on it, so but it was sort of stand up. It was stand up poetry. It's it relating to sort of a stand up poetry archive, I think. I mean, I think it's worth saying that although it's, it's we, our collection is dedicated to stand up comedy, stand up comedy crosses over with other forms. So, for example, really one of the I think a key influence on the the birth of alternative comedy, if you like, was. John Cooper Clarke and Linton Kwesi Johnson, who were two very different poet poets who also worked together. So John Cooper Clarke is actually a brilliant punk poet who used to be on with punk bands and so on. I mean, I first saw him supported by a band, I think, and, and you know, in, in a music venue in Lincoln, in, in the Drill Hall in Lincoln in about 1982, maybe 83, something like that. Um, and it was, it was like you'd go and see a band. You know, you'd, we were standing up, you know, in in a venue where you'd normally see a band, and uh, he did some of the, the poems to backing tracks, tape, you know, tapes. He put out albums, you know, w- you know, with with his poems set to music, and 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 they're they're just brilliant. I mean, John Cooper Clock is just an amazing poet, but also a phenomenal performer. You know, really breakneck speed. You know, with a lot of the poems, like like 
uh, and then and on the other hand, you had uh, Linda Quasi Johnson, who came not out of punk but out of dub and reggae, and and a very different rhythm. And again, an absolutely amazing poet and a great performer as well. And they influenced a bunch of poets who came just a little bit after. So Attila was the main punk one, but there was also Seething Wells, who was more of a a, a skinhead and and also a music journalist under the name Stephen Wells, which is his actual name, or sometimes Susan Wells or Susan Williams. I can't remember. Swells, he was also known as. Anyway, lots of different names for for Seething Wells. And then there were various other ones. There's uh, Jules uh, from uh, Leeds, I think, so certainly Yorkshire somewhere, uh, and various other uh, poets. And and they they had their own poetry scene, their ranting poetry scene. And also Benjamin Zephaniah, really important, who who also was kind of connected with reggae. But all of them were involved in the '80s alternative cabaret scene in one way or another. They did their own poetry gigs as well, and probably did gigs with bands and so on. But they definitely, for sure and certain, worked in cabaret. So, for example, the Cassidy Variety Circuit, Benjamin Zephaniah was a star of that circuit, and Attila would have probably done gigs for them as well. Mm. So, Lindsay Crazy Johnson and John Cooper Clark would have influenced people like Alexis Sale, the pioneers of alternative comedy. But also, this slightly later wave sort of worked alongside uh, the, the early alternative comedians uh, and cabaret performers. So, it, you know, it's really important that that's reflected, I think, in our collection. Mm. And well, I'm I think really... it is, through kind of like Nick Tokshak's collection in particular, but also through like Linda Smith's collection, yeah. Mark Thomas's. Nick Tokshak's worth mentioning, actually, because yeah. he was part of that scene too. Yeah. And uh, he ran, um, you know, I think he ran a thing called... Bradford Alternative Cabaret at one yep. point. Um, so and he was he was a poet, you know, and and he is yeah. still. I mean, he, he's a children's poet, very successful yeah. children's poet now. But he ran specifically poetry festivals and poetry nights as well. Yeah, and but but so, also you yeah. know cabaret nights and comedy yeah. nights. I mean, I used to gig for for Nick. Um, he used to mix gigs. Some of them were quite, uh, <laughs> I mean, weird, uh, weirdly set up. But actually, some of them were just so fun to play. So yeah, um, and obviously we've got an earlier episode all about mm. about Nick and his his uh, gigs that he used to run. And what we have now is we've got a clip of a performer who some certainly younger listeners probably aren't aware of, but a comedian who was a really important performer in in the eighties and nineties, uh, Mark Hurst, who was originally known as Mark My Words uh, when he was a ranting poet, effectively from Sheffield, and he used to appear on a show which was one of the first shows to be. Pre- shown on Channel 4, a programme called The Tube, which was uh, presented by Jules Holland and Paulie Yates. And it was a, it was a, it was a music show, really. And, uh, but, the, but in the first series, at least, Mark My Words did a poem to, to, you know, to camera. Um, and I remember as, as somebody who was really in, interested in punk at the time, thinking, oh, I don't know who this guy is, but I like mm. him. And I love the fact he was called Mark My Words, a punning name. My Words is spelled M-I-W-U-R-D-Z, Mark My Words. So it's, it looks like it's like a Polish name or something, mm. but obviously it sounds like Mark My Words. Um, and later he went under his own name of Mark Hurst. And he sort of... Anyway, what we've got... Is, I, I interviewed him recently for a project I'm doing, and here we have a clip of him talking about his connection with the poetry scene of the time. Edit. It was interesting at that time, the different types of poets, because though it was put under the banner of ranting, there were very few that were actually ranting. You know, Attila ranted and, and Swells ranted. Little Brother was more like Stanley Holloway, slow, 
monologue and Jules was like um you know some sort of a dramatic sort of uh, you know her own delivery you know slow and deliberate but I mean all of it seemed to be um a, a, you know a humor based you know it wasn't so so that's what I who I aligned with and uh, but eventually found it a bit restrictive you know and felt a little bit like that I was letting them down a bit sort of because stand up was becoming so prevalent and more stand ups were starting to appear on the cast bills and previous to that you know they'd resisted it because it was like you know the comedy store was obviously um you know the other big venue and male stand-up after male stand-up was what was the, the order of the day and it was a bit of it felt like I, you know I had a little bit of you know that from people which is oh you do you're just a stand-up comic now then you know and it felt like you'd sort of you know sort of broke ranks a bit edit so so yeah mark started off as a poet and 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 kind of morphed into being a, a straight stand-up uh later on and it's i just i must just say this he was a brilliant stand-up and there was a really fun thing that he used to do in his act when he did like a lot of extended set at the end he would do a quiz and he would ask the audience questions about his jokes and it was like a, it was almost like a proper quiz like people would shout out the answer and stuff i just that's a brilliant idea but uh, yeah, he was he was uh, yeah he started as a poet and, and became a you know a straight comedian. But but I think the point that he makes there is really interesting is that to a greater or lesser extent they were all comic poets. So Attila was a very funny performer, and I think he still is. You know, but I mean his poems not all his poems are funny, but he had some really funny ones. Like it it, it doesn't really translate now, but he had a really funny poem called "The Russians Are Running the DHSS." So the context for that is, I mean, it's really hard to imagine sort of 30 or 40 years ago that Russia would have been seen as a terrifying enemy, because obviously we can't imagine that today. <laughs> you know, that's, that world is gone. We would never imagine Russia as a threat now. Um, have I put enough heavy irony into my voice there? <laughs> anyway, uh, but, but, but I mean, you know, the, the threat of kind of Russian communism and the idea of, you know, the imminent nuclear war and things. But, but the DHSS was... I don't know what you call it now, but it was the um, Department for Health and Social Security. So it was where you went if you were unemployed. And the poem was sort of parodying right-wing tabloid, you know, invective. You know, it, so the idea was that the Russians have taken over the DHSS and, and sort of parodying the attacks on the welfare state and, and on the unemployed coming from the right-wing newspapers. And it's a really funny poem. Uh, I mean, I remember seeing Attila in the mid-'80s and... Uh, he was really funny, and um, and uh, I've I've heard two different recordings of that poem from the early eighties, and it gets like it's like a, I mean, in terms of the volume of laughter and the frequency of laughter, it's like seeing a bit of stand up. It's just it's in in strictly rhymed couplets, that kind of thing. So so yeah, I think I think that's an important point that he makes. But anyway, the item that we've picked out is, as you say, um, a notebook and some notes of of his poem. So should we have a quick look through those? Yeah. So maybe we'll start with the notes uh, because I think these are older. Yeah, I think I think well I think they were just loose as they came in, so okay. they've been sort of put together. I'm afraid we can't really date. Th- well, I suppose we could date them depending on when the kind of poems were written. Um, but I don't have that information to hand. No, I'm afraid. no, no, no. And whether you know whether it, it would be quite a job of work to do as well. That looks like yeah. it's that set list on the other side of that one. Yeah. So. 
Yeah, that's a set list look. It's, it looks like it's come out of a notebook. It does. So we've got a kind of... Can we just read through that set list? Yeah. So, do, well, do you want to read it? Uh, okay, so Radio, Away Day, Swells, E.T., Spies, Oracle, Love. Mm, I think that's just crossed out. So, yeah. uh, Halibuts, Gentlemen, Bang and Wimpy, yep. Wine, Nigel, Eros, Bromley, Nigel 2, hmm. Products, Products, and then Pop Stars. So these aren't even the full titles of poems. It's mm. just exactly like a stand-up comics set list mm. in that these things are just aid memoir. Now, I don't know Attila's repertoire as well as I might, but I recognise at least some of those some of his famous mm. poems. Yeah. I think the Swells one is is about he, he had to share a bed with Seething Wells when they were on tour together or something, and it's a, a poem about the horrors <laughs> of having to... Of course, he was his friend. You know, it's not really... Uh, he's not really complaining about it, but it's just comical. Uh, Bang and a Wimpy was one of his uh, poems, which the title of which comes from a John Cooper Clarke poem, so you can see the influence going on. And obviously it's it's from the, the famous line about the world will I'm not with a bang, but, but a whimper. Nigel will come on to in a minute, and Nigel too, so that was a sequence of poems. Um, pop stars, again, will come on to in a minute. Um, but so, so he's just written out the, the, the running order, and he's not a poet that would come on with a, with a notebook and read from the thing. It's very much a kind of, we'll talk a bit more about that in a minute, but it's very much the thing of getting on the stage. You know all the poems are in your head, you declaim them, you know, you... Anyway, we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But so, so what else have we got amongst the the, the notes? Um, so there's well, individual ET, poems. That, that, so ET, that'll uh, be yeah. ET from the list, and it's called ET laxative. Um, and then this looks to be more. It's less a poem. It's more sort of notes. Yeah, it's quite interesting. Um, but some of them are kind of. It's hard to tell if they're. Some of them certainly could be drafts, couldn't they? Because they're sort of crossing outs. And, whereas some seem to be more kind of, I don't know, eight memoirs or... Yeah. Although, as we'll maybe talk about later, he sort of has everything in his head. His head, yeah, absolutely. So, so uh, I, this, right, so this one, I don't talk to pop stars, uh, which starts off, I don't talk to pop... I don't talk to pop stars and they don't talk to me. It's a mutual arrangement the way we like to be. If you want to see the proper man reading it properly <laughs> or, or, or reciting it properly, just Google Attila the Stockbroker or look it up on YouTube because you can find a clip of him doing it on a TV show from the mid-'80s, and he obviously does it better than me. Uh, and it's a really funny um, poem about, you know, I mean, obviously it's part of the punk thing, isn't it? You don't talk to pop stars. You know, it's very anti-hierarchical, very you know, against the idea of the star. Um, but then it's really sweet because at the end he goes, one day if I'm a pop star, will you please talk to me? <laughs> I think that's a really surprisingly vulnerable and sweet ending to the poem. And then we've also got um, another one of his famous early poems here, Nigel Wants to Go to CNAs. And he did, as I said, a sequence of poems about Nigel, who I suppose represented, Nigel represented, a bit like what I was saying about a stockbroker earlier, the name Nigel represents boringness and, mm. and, and fitting in, you know, conformism I suppose uh, CNA's was a popular clothes shop sort of slightly less sort of pricey so I mean Primark I suppose would probably be about the same now 
Uh, Nigel wants to go to CNA East, but it's been taken over by the Viet Cong, is the opening line, <laughs> which in a way is the same kind of gag as Attila the Stockbroker. It's the juxtaposition of something very normal and mundane, in a way, with something quite extreme that's you know seen as out of the ordinary within our culture. But I love the fact we've got this written, in this case, in pencil, um, written, written out on, um, I don't know what size of paper that is, like an A5 or something. And it's obviously taken out of a a pre, you know, um, hole-punched book. Whereas this is a, what do you call those cheap pads that are kind of bound with a spiral yeah. of wire, metal it's wire? It's a spiral pad. Spiral pad, there we go. So that's that's taught from a spiral <laughs> notepad. I don't talk to pop stars. And it's looking, you can, it's showing signs of age because it is, you know, probably 35 years old at least. And, uh, I mean, it's possible it's not this first draft. Although, no, I, th- I think it is because there's lines where it's crossed out and, and amended I, I mean it, it, I suppose he might have done earlier drafts but 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 I love the fact that we've got the the original or, or something like the original here and and it, to me the fact it's got little stains on and a bit of yellowing around the edge and, and one of the edges bent and things that that speaks of its age and provenance in a way I like that yeah the notebook is is um well used I think as well so the notebook underneath needs a bit of kind of care I yeah. think um, but this is the kind of the other object we were going to look at wasn't yeah. it which is um, more of a red a red hardback notebook but it's got his sticker on the front and I love the sticker it says Attila the stockbroker in big chunky letters sonsory font with the Attila really big and the two A's bigger than the rest of the letters so it's got a kind of logo-y look about it and it's got a picture of Attila dressed almost like as a devil holding a kind of garden fork in front of his face I think he used that fairly regularly, didn't he? That was that his logo for a time. I right? think it might have been. We've certainly seen that photo, mm. haven't we, on other items in his collection? And at the bottom, in tiny lettering, it says, "All privatised industries will be renationalised without compensation," and a huge poster and TV campaign will be launched saying, "Simple, tell Sid." tough <laughs> right and this is reference to one of the privatization advertising campaigns i forget what it was now but um it, which which of the particular tory privatization campaigns in the 80s but it was tell sid and the idea of that campaign was really quite nasty because it was implying that ordinary working class people with names like sid would would end up the owners of these industries whereas of course when they were nationalized we were all technically the owners right so it was almost like say the opposite of what it was but also if you look at what happened to privatized industries whilst some people who didn't have huge amounts of money did buy in the initial surge they tended to sell their shares quite quickly and they all ended up with big you know, big capitalist owners. So the idea that it was this big exercise in democracy, well, other views are available, but in my old unreconstructed lefty view was a pile of horseshit. So, yeah. So um, Sid used, sorry, that name was used in the advertising. Yeah. Oh, okay. So Sid was, in fact, I think Sid became a figure in Steve Bell's uh, if strip for a while. We also have the, the British cartoon archive in, at, at the university. We have sort of Steve Bell's yeah. work. And uh, another kind of hero of mine from that time, actually, Steve Bell. But um, yeah, I think Sid became a sort of was used satirically within the if strip. So tell Sid tough is quite a good gag, you know. I mean, obviously, very time specific. Hence me having to explain it. Um, and this one, I think, is later, isn't it? I'm guessing. Yeah, although we might be able to date it now with the sticker. 
yeah. information. Possibly. Yeah, I mean, I mean, tell Sid would have been like, I don't know, I'm guessing 86, 87, but I could be wrong about that. We could Google it. But, mm-hmm. um, and, and what I like about this notebook is um, the, the handwriting is absolutely beautiful, isn't it? How, mm-hmm. how would you describe that? Well, it's very small, very neat. It's like block. No, it's not all block. Some of it's block writing, isn't it? Kind of all capitals, I mean. But yeah, it's amazingly neat. I wish I had handwriting like that, all in a black pen. Yeah, my handwriting is a disgrace. Mm. And it seems to me that somebody who's so anti-establishment for him to have such neat writing is, <laughs> is amazingly unfair. <laughs> or No, it's not unfair at all. It's just, it's just, it's just a surprise, really. They're all, all the poems are sort of written in the middle of the page as well, aren't they? So there's yeah. quite a large margin to the left. Yeah. And and uh, they're also, I mean, it's a lined notebook, but he doesn't observe the lines. I mean, he fits two or two and a half lines in some cases, you know, within between two of the pre-printed uh, lines on, on the page. So um, it's interesting. The Zen Stalinist manifesto is something that I think is a famous piece of it. It doesn't look like a poem as such because it doesn't follow a strict verse form, but it's a kind of satirical um, explanation of his his um, politics I suppose and uh, yes yeah, it, it's, it's, yeah, it's a manifesto for how the world could be better I mean I suspect that's where he's taken the line on from his sticker from so yeah it's, it's, it's fascinating seeing it's very different actually from, from um, the, some of the scripts we've looked at from comedians isn't it because mm. although in some ways, it's similar because it's written on scraps of paper and it's written handwritten and things. The difference is you can see the content. The content is clear from, you know, you could read that off the page and you could know what the poem was, as opposed to a stand-up bit where often it will be just, even something like Andy de la Tour where it's written out, he the actual in performance, it won't be exactly word for word the same, whereas presumably once the poem was fixed for Attila, that's the poem that he would perform. Yeah, I don't know. There are some of the um, poems do have kind of amendments to them. Yeah, don't so maybe they? he changed but them as he went on. Yeah, that's an interesting question, actually. I mean, I wonder whether those changes were made in response to multiple performances, mm. or whether those changes were made before the first performance, where as he sort of tried to get it right. I mean, it's interesting because I mean, this one, for example, the first one in the book is is uh, Victoria Road, and it spans three, you know, it's two two and a bit pages. And there's very little amendment in it. There's a couple of lines on the second page that he's changed things. Uh, And that's it. The the rest of it is just as written. It just comes straight out of him. I think that's really interesting. Talking of which, should we have a listen to... We've got a bit of audio here. It's not... not, Well, it is from an interview, but it's not not an ordinary interview as such. This was from uh, an event which we'll talk more about but the point you need to know about this interview is that it was done in front of a live audience and this is basically I asked Attila about his working methods edit well let's talk more about poetry uh, because you've been doing this for 35 years yeah, or something like that. Yeah. so so uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you work I mean how you generate uh, material um, how you prepare for a performance I write about the world I write about the world I see around me and I write about what happens to me and I never, ever need to generate material. It just sits there and says hello. Um, I don't prepare for performance. I, I, I love it. It's the most natural thing in the world. I don't, I don't have a self-doubt gene. I don't get nervous. 
Um, I just get up and do it. It's just me, I'm the same off stage as on. Anyone who knows me will tell you that. But I mean, you've just got up and did a poem which is long and complex and, and rhythmically demanding, you know, or, you know, without missing a beat. And my question is, you know, you, how do you internalise that? How do you get that ready to perform? Because you must have to learn the text. Well, I mean, I, I, by the time I finish writing it, I know most of it anyway. So I write some. So I write something, then I, I go for a walk, I go for a cycle ride, and just recite it in my head, or read it off a bit of paper, or go down the pub and look at it a few times, by half an hour later, or an hour later, or two hours later. I've normally remembered it. It's very different. For me, I mean, it's funny talking about this, because I find rhyming cup, it's incredibly easy to remember, blank verse a lot more difficult. Um, if I need to, I'm quite happy to read. I mean, I, you know, in the second half, I'll be reading for miles of over here. I mean, I've got no problem at all with reading poetry, and, you know, it's big, you don't just read, you perform, so that's the point. You know, there's nothing wrong with having a script in front of you, as long as you still handle the audience by it, you know. Yeah, yeah. And sort of look up. I mean, one of the things about page poets, um, you know, trying to perform a poetry readings is that they think, because they've got important words, um, that the way to read them is to stand like this, looking down like that. And then they wonder why people are kind of totally alienated, not listening to what they're saying. And, uh, do, do you work with a fixed set list, or do you write to a different set? I've got hours. I've got about 16 hours of material. What my beloved Brian of Albion Football Club on their beam ends in 1995, um, I, um, I did a, a ten and a half hour sponsor gig as part of a campaign to raise some money for the club. So I, I did play for ten and a half hours without stopping, apart from two piss breaks, um, <laughs> and didn't repeat any material. And that was in 1997. Um, I've got hours and hours of it. And, and also, presumably, your set is made up of. I mean, obviously, you've got songs and you've got you've got poems, but presumably, there's patterns as well between. You know, you have ways of introducing them and so on. No, I mean, yeah, I mean, to a degree, yes, absolutely. But again, it's not. I don't. It's not kind of. I don't learn stuff. I mean, I just just. It's just what comes out on the day on the day. And it tends to be the same kind of things. I mean, for me, the most important thing is the actual prepared pieces that I've got, poems and the songs. The bits in between are just basically social chatter and, and introducing stuff and you know, I mean that's that's really that's where it is. Edit So I find that I find that fascinating and, and he, he talks about how he has sixteen hours worth of material in his brain. Mm. That's amazing. That is actually amazing. And, and, and actually, I don't doubt it at all. And I'll tell you why I don't doubt it. Because I, as I mentioned before, I saw him in the mid-80s the, for, for the first time. And when, you know, before the interview, we were at the, at the counter. I was getting him a coffee or something before the gig. And uh, I said to him that I, you know, I'd mentioned that I'd seen him. And I, I, I remembered him doing a particular piece, which was Ken Livingston rap, right? And, and, and without missing a beat, he went, Boom, and he did the entire poem. Hmm. And it was kind of, it was amazingly impressive. And it was kind of weird at the same time. Um, because, you know, the interview was, basically the interview was 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 part of, was, was the first half of the show, and the second half he did a set of poems and songs. Uh, it was in the Gulbenkian Cafe, um, and in front of an audience of, I don't know, 100 people or something. And, uh, and, and I, I was just blown away that he could take a poem that, you know, I mentioned uh, from the 1980s, and he could recite it word for word, full performance energy. It was it was kind of weird and daunting in a way, but it was amazingly impressive that he could do that. I was I was astonished, 
And then what the thing that really struck me uh, about sort of because during the um, during the interview, although the second half was poems. During the interview, sometimes he would mention a poem and he'd go, shall I do it? And I'd go, yeah. And he would just stand up and do the poem. <laughs> you know, you'd go from just, just talking like a human to reciting like a poet, right? And I think it's really interesting the way that he talks about page poets, in other words, standard poets who aren't performance poets, not understanding the dynamics of performance. And I think that's really true. I think what, what, you know, what he has is a kind of muscularity to the way that he recites his poems. Like, like it feels like it, it's heightened. It's not like normal speech. It's very different from stand-up, which pretends to be like normal speech. It's similar in a way, because like I say, there's gags in there and things like that. But when he gets up and recites, it's, it's, it's almost like a song or something. You know, like it's like a punk song, but without a band. Mm, like the performance is more evident and yeah. like obvious to the audience. I think so, yeah. Audience. It's heightened. Yeah. Even though it's not like he... It's like the, 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 the human, the, the Attila, the John Bain or whatever, disappears completely. It's just that it's so heightened. And, and, and it's like the, the speech feels... That's the thing, the same with uh, Linton Quasi Johnson. I went to see him a few years ago at the Horsebridge in Whitstable. And, you know, he, he like John Cooper Clock, he recorded his poems to, to backing, in his case, reggae. And they're great. His albums are amazing. They're great reggae albums, you know, as well as being great poems. But... You know, when you hear uh, Linton Crazy Johnson recite his poems, the, the musicality of that is amazing. It sounds, it's almost like hearing music, even though you're just hearing a human voice speaking. And it's partly the tone of his voice, but it's partly the rhythm. And it's partly that there is almost like a, yeah, like like pitch and tone in there as well. Um, I mean, obviously, the, the, the kind of music that he plays and the kind of music Attila plays, and which takes us back to the Mark Hurst thing, which I think is really interesting. You know, that the Attila is ranting because his poems come out tend to come out at breakneck speed and they're strict, you know, rhyming couplets and things like that. So it so it seems like a rant. Uh, whereas somebody like Linton Quasi Johnson, although his poems are, you know, rhyming or whatever, um there's a much slower, gentler, more lyrical pace. There's a really and really attractive energy in his is you know in, in his delivery kind of thing benjamin zephaniah is interesting because he though he comes from sort of dub and reggae again he's he's got some pretty breakneck speed ones as well which again are brilliant and exciting and, and what have you so yeah it's interesting is there anything else that you think we should mention about Attila or the links between comedy and poetry or anything else that strikes you or anything about what's in the collection that's interesting that people should know about? Um, well, I was just looking at the um, his manifesto because when he was, he campaigned kind of, for, well, not for, but kind of alongside Rock Against Racism. Like, yeah. So that was kind of a big kind of influence. Yeah. Um, kind of while he was a student here. Um, so maybe, yeah, if we could touch upon that. Well, Rock Against Racism was really important. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's got John Bain for president there and, and he's got the Rock Against Racism logo, a really nice logo. It's a very simple logo, easy to sort of put on a sticker and stick the sticker on a wall. It's, it's a star, a five-point star with the words Rock Against Racism and a fairly blocky font. It's something like, oh, Helsinki or something, or no, uh, I don't know, Ariel or something. But it's block capitals and the the... the it's in three layers rock against racism and they're slightly offset against each other the star is the five point star is a slight angle and then there's a sort of black circle round the edge which the 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 points of the star kind of are superimposed onto 
Um, and that was a very iconic logo. In, in If you're a music fan in, in the late 70s, early 80s, mm. you would definitely know that logo. And Rock Against Racism was a huge thing in the late 70s, really important, because basically what happened was that racism had sort of crept, crept into mainstream culture to some extent. I mean, in the 68, Enoch Powell had done the famous or infamous Rivers of Blood speech, suggesting that, that there, were gonna, there was going to be bloodshed as a, as a result of mass immigration. Um, the National Front seemed to be doing well in elections and, you know, they had marches and things. And then what happened was that um, people like Eric Clapton and I hate to say it, David Bowie started making stupid statements which suggested they were in some way sy sympathetic to either racism or, or Nazism. And uh, hence people talk about David Bowie flirting with fascism and people from within the music industries went, this is bullshit, we've got to say we're not, th this is not okay. So you had, um, you know, uh, Rock Against Racism. And what was brilliant about Rock Against Ra Racism was you had gigs where you'd have a reggae band like Steel Pulse on with, the, uh, you know, a white punk band like The Clash sort of saying, look, fuck you, you know, we belong on the same bill. And apart from anything else, they're both brilliant bands. So, you know, what a great thing for people to be able to, you know, to, to, to see those bands on the same bill. So Rock Against Racism was a really important thing. And, in you know, just directly before alternative comedy, really. I mean, I suppose its heyday was probably 78, 79, and I Comedy Store opened in 79. Yeah. There we go. So, yeah. So was poetry also the, uh, a bridge, in a way, between kind of music and yeah. um, comedy. Yeah, because people often talk about punk as being a, 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 a really important influence on mm. alternative comedy. And other people say, no, it's not that important. I mean, it's disputed, like any aspect of alternative comedy. And I think both of those arguments have some validity because in many, many ways very different from punk. But in other ways, you know, there is a clear similarity in, in the, the approach, the DIY approach. I mean, we've spoken in another episode about pranksters, which in a way was a very DIY organisation, an early attempt to sort of promote alternative comedy. And then again, you know, the, 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 um, if you watch or listen to footage of Alexi Sales' early stand-up, the aggression, you know, there and the sweariness and the politics all kind of you know the the performance energy a bit like i was saying with attila and his with the way he performs poems the, the performance energy in in the alexi sales stand-up was very punk i think in a way and uh, yeah i think the poetry was a bridge between the two because you know john cooper clark had started out playing with punk bands in manchester and things like that i think it might, he might have done poems before he was involved in the punk scene actually but certainly was that was an important part of the of the manchester punk scene was was john cooper clark Definitely a lot of the people like, you know, Alexi or Ben Elton or whatever would talk about those people as, as, as influencers. And it was spoken word entertainment performed straight to an audience, aimed at younger people with a political content, a social content, like social satire content and sweariness and things like that, a kind of a slightly sort of abrasive attitude. So you can absolutely see that as a bridging link. And then, as I say, you know... Um, you know, uh, people like Benjamin Zephaniah and Attila would play in cabaret in the eight, in the eighties and even into the nineties. You know, in some cases, but also, I mean, I think even there were, there were even gigs where there was crossover between alternative comedy and John Cooper Clark and Linda Quasi Johnson. I mean, pretty sure that Linda Quasi Johnson would have done gigs for Cassidy Variety and Andy De La Tour went up. One of the early alternative comedians went up to Edinburgh in I think eighty four or eighty five with John Cooper Clark. So. Absolutely, it's the bridge between punk and alternative comedy is people like Attila. 
But anyway, this podcast isn't just about us talking to you. It's also about you getting involved, which you can do in various ways. Get involved! There are various ways that you can get involved in this podcast, but first you'll need to know how to contact us. You can email us via standup at kent.ac.uk. That's standup, all one word, no hyphen, at kent.ac.uk. And you can also contact us via Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at histcompod. The first way of getting involved is go to our online catalogue, find a listing for a comedy object and nominate it. We'll talk about all nominated objects in future episodes. That's the vanilla version of getting involved. The chocolate chip version of getting involved is to visit the British Stand-Up Comedy Archive in the Templeman Library at the University of Kent. Uh, look at an object, record a short piece about it, send us the audio and we'll feature it in a future episode. And the daftest way of getting involved is to record your own cover version of our theme tune. And if we like it, we'll feature it in a future episode. Uh, we will give you rewards for getting involved, which include podcast badges and uh, British Stand-Up Comedy Archive t-shirts. A history of comedy and several objects is devised and presented by Dr. Oliver Double and Elspeth Miller for the British Stand-Up Comedy Archive, brought to you by the University of Kent. This is made possible by the University of Kent's Public Engagement Research Fund. Photography by Matt Wilson and editing and production by Matt Hulse.